Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our class on the desire for eternal life. Um, before we get into the class proper, I want to do a little bit of an infomercial for our next class. So, um, this week, desire for eternal life. Next week, we're going to cheat a little bit because the desire for eternal life, our focus has been on the intermediate state, where we go immediately upon death but not the final state. When Christ comes and we are resurrected in our bodies, we inherit the new heavens and the new earth. So next week is our cheat week where we kind of climax with our series, The Desire for Eternal Life, by looking ahead to the resurrection of the body, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. Okay? Um, this week, though, one more time on the intermediate state, that place where you go when you die, believing in Christ Jesus to heaven. Okay, so that's this week and next week, which means that three weeks from today, we will be starting a new class. And that class is going to be a blast from the past, a retro class, if you will. You're going to need one of these, okay? A small catechism with explanation. And you're also going to need, as always, one of these, a Bible, okay? Whether yours is on your phone or in paper is fine, but you're going to need a Bible and you're going to want a small catechism. Now, a few things. Of course, if you don't have a Lutheran study Bible yet, um, it doesn't matter if you're Lutheran or not, speaking to those of our, our viewers online, you still want one because it's about the best objective study Bible there is, period. Obviously, I'm biased, but as objective as I can be, it's a fantastic study Bible. Now, they're a little bit pricey. I don't know exactly what they are. They're a little bit pricey to find. I think you can maybe get one for $40 or so. It's worth cutting out the lattes for, what, $40 a, a day? Uh, <laughs> uh, or eating ramen for, uh, for a couple of weeks. It's worth it. Um, Lutheran Study Bible, you'll never regret it. And um, then, then um, the specific catechism you need, Luther's small catechism. Um, generally speaking, if you just go find this one, you're going to find the right one, but it has gotten a little tricky. This is the 2017 edition. Now, if you've got the Book of Concord and you think, well, I'm set. The small catechism's in there. You're not set. The small catechism is in there, but not the explanation. And I think I kind of did this, um, I did this in one of my classes recently. I'm already getting old. I can't remember which one. But um, the small catechism really is small. The small catechism is something like, like this. Okay? It's very small. And then the explanation expands upon the small catechism, really takes the small catechism, blows it up as an outline, expands upon it with scriptural texts, and then with all kinds of relevant, pertinent, like up-to-date questions that we all have. So you really do want this as a tool in your, in your home library, uh, the small catechism with explanation. And these, these are only like $15 or something like that. So about half the price of that cup of coffee you not get teasing, teasing. Okay, so that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing three weeks from now. Um, we will be jumping into that, and that will take us up 
through Lent, which historically in the church is a period of time in which the church all gathers for catechesis, that is um, to relay and re-examine that foundation of our faith, and then to deepen our understanding of it and expand our understanding of it as well. So that's the project starting in three weeks. It'll take us through Easter. Then we hit the summer, we'll do something different. All right, let me know if you have any questions on that, but otherwise I'm letting you know ahead of time so you can make these orders and get them from your online bookseller. All right, so today, the desire for eternal life. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we just prayed, deliver us from evil, we remember the Catechism's way of instruction, when we consider this petition, deliver us from evil. Now, there's good case to be made that in the original Greek, when Jesus gives this petition to his disciples, it's deliver us from the evil one. Now, it's a distinction without that much of a difference. Okay, so we don't need to get worked up about that. But as the Catechism reminds us, this petition is ultimately fulfilled, deliver us from evil, in death. That is finally when we are delivered from the kingdom of Satan and from the powers of sin and even from the threat of death because having passed through it, we now see that death has been destroyed. And that is the power of Christ's death that by his death he destroys death. It means more than just that he renders it a neutral thing or a little bit of a less negative thing. He so thoroughly destroys death that death becomes, for the Christian, an entirely positive thing. What dies in death? Only the sinful Adam, the sinful flesh that still clings to you. Jesus has this remarkable statement. The first part's easy. The second part is what we're talking about now. The first part, though you die, yet shall you live. Very simple. Promise of the resurrection. Next line. Very challenging. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, we Christians have been dying for 2,000 years. What's the meaning of this? That death is no longer death for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we pass through death, we will realize that it is but the gateway to eternal life. Death has been destroyed and has in many ways become its opposite. Whereas death is a punishment and a degradation, it is now a blessing and an elevation. The early church fathers were so taken with Christ's destructive power in death, how he really disarms death, he changes it into its exact opposite, namely a birth. To die is to be born. And so death it becomes perceived as a birth canal. And this life as only life in utero. And so we are, as it were, in the womb of this 
of this earth, waiting to be born through death into eternal life as sons of God. This is the power of Christ's death, destroying death, and doing so in such a way that death is rendered its exact opposite. Okay, so then, as we pass through death, we realize that we are free from the evil one. We've been delivered from the evil one. We've been delivered from evil. We're outside of Satan's kingdom, safe in heaven. He's been kicked out of heaven, Revelation 12, and can't come back in. And we're safe from sin. The sinful part of us has already been put to death, forgiven by the blood of Christ. And we have now already, at least in part, conquered death because we've passed through death and found it to be no death at all. We found it rather to be a new birth and the profoundest blessing. The final piece, of course, leaning forward, is when Christ's victory is so complete that he descends to the earth and makes earth his domain 100%, kicks out Satan and all the fallen angels, and gives us thus not, not only a new heavens, but also a new earth. Then the resurrection of our flesh, the restoration of all things. It's when it's no longer whatsoever by faith, but only by sight. And we will see the fullness of what God has come to do in his Son. All right, so all of that helps to contextualize then the way that we look at death as Christians. The Bible has many different ways that we can look at death. We simply want to become proficient in understanding all those different ways. And here's yet another way to look at death, namely that it is deliverance from evil. Okay, so then uh, when we die, we are delivered from all evil. And we find ourselves in a place of heavenly bliss. Now, as we've mentioned, if you die and you've died as one rejecting Christ Jesus, rejecting the forgiveness of sins, rejecting reconciliation with God, if you die in a state of animosity toward God and hatred toward God, then essentially it's like this. God gives you what you want. God is life. I hate life. Okay, you've got death. God is love. I hate love. Okay, you've got hatred. God is light. I hate light. Okay, you've got darkness. And now you start to see how it is that hell is described. Okay, as really the place of, of people who reject God getting that which they want. Now, Jesus tells a story, and this is, you can start turning or turning on your phone, um, to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells. We don't know if this is a parable. We don't know if Jesus means this literally, um, but nonetheless, it factors into our data set regarding the intermediate state. And the question, what happens when you die? Where do people go when they die? And what it, what is it like? Luke chapter 16, and we'll begin at verse 19, where Jesus is going to be talking about the story, you're probably familiar with it, the rich man and Lazarus. And so we'll examine it specifically from this angle then. All right, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
Now, this is um, maybe not quite so clear to us, but this description of wearing purple, about the most costly colored clothing you could wear, the fine linen likewise, and feasting sumptuously every single day, um, shows the profligacy of this rich man. He is, he is the 1%. All right. He is feasting sumptuously. And now we're going to have this contrasted. Verse 20 of chapter 16. And at his gate was laid. Now notice the passive. Who laid him there? And for what purpose? Surely this rich man would have so much abundance that his riches would pour out to this man who is laid at his gate. Slight, small detail, but interesting. He was laid, so uh, we can see that uh, in, in all likelihood he's not able to walk, but was carried there that the rich man in his abundance might provide and care and show mercy for the poor man. So at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. All right, look at the artistry of Jesus preaching. Okay, there was a rich man, and we have that contrasted with a poor man. What's the rich man's name? We don't know. What's the poor man's name? Lazarus. In that day, who do you think knew the rich man's name? Everyone. Who knew the bum's name laying in the gutter outside his... No one. So already there's a rather subtle but profound reversal that's taken place. In the eyes of Jesus, in the eyes of heaven, things look very differently than they do to us here on earth. The people we think are famous are forgotten in heaven, and the people we don't even know their names are remembered in heaven for all eternity. All right, so look at the artistry. We have a rich man who's nameless and a poor man who's named. The rich man is clothed in purple. What is the poor man clothed with? Sores. That's his clothing. Sores. The rich man feasts sumptuously every day, and what does the poor man desire? To be fed with the leftovers, with the, the T-bones that have just a little bit of meat left on them. Just toss me that so I can chew off the bone. <laughs> All right, quite the contrast, isn't it? Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, in the, in the history of interpretation of this um, saying of Jesus, this sermon, this line has received a diversity of treatments. Um, but I think one thing can be safe. These aren't the cute little dogs that hop out of your purse, you know, at the end of the day and you take and get, get perms with you at the hair salon. Not these kind of dogs. Um, yeah, yeah. So how is this typically taken? One of two ways, either kind of menacingly that these are dogs that he can't even keep himself safe from the wild animals. Or sometimes it's taken in this way. The dogs would do for him what the rich man would not. The dogs would care for his wounds when the rich man wouldn't. Okay, those might be two broad categories of interpretation in regard to this line. 
Did I see a hand waving in the background? Uh, attitude toward dogs or canines in general. Uh, they don't they don't uh, think of them as being good things. They're ca they're carrion eaters. They're 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 not clean. I mean that's true in the that's true in the uh, Muslim world. It's true yeah. all over the Middle East. Yeah, so, even here, even here, like in my house, when my daughter when my daughter asks for a pet, same thing. I say, so it's I'm like I'm Middle Eastern. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, a, but it is that it is that kind of. This is gross. It would have it would have it wouldn't have scandalized this audience, but it might have made them blanch. They might have gone, "Oh gosh, this is horrible." Yeah, yeah. I I'm with unclean, you on that. Unclean. I'm with you on that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what happens next? after this, this kind of beautiful parallelism that Jesus has given us here, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom is kind of one of those loaded theological terms. There's more there than meets the eye. If you kind of dig around in the Old Testament text, this is like... Um, Mm, it's analogous to this. Remember on the night when Jesus was betrayed and they're all reclining around the table? Now again, kind of Middle Eastern culture thing. You're not all sitting in the chairs upright at your table. You're all kind of off, off on your side, propping yourself by your elbow. And the disciple whom he loved is next to Jesus' breast. How does that work? Well, as all their legs are kind of kicked out and they're leaning in towards the inside of the table, you know, John's head is probably something like right here the disciple whom he loved. And so he could just turn and say to the Lord, you know, is it I who will betray you? This kind of thing. Very close. So this imagery is very similar to this idea of Abraham's bosom, okay? That they're all reclining at feast in the kingdom of God, and to be drawn to Abraham's bosom is to be drawn into that feast and fellowship, into that uh, family. That's kind of the image here. Otherwise, I don't know. We get some kind of weird imagery that pops into our mind that isn't biblical. So that's this idea of coming to Abraham's uh, side. Now, again, if Jesus is saying anything that's like, he may be speaking in a parable, but if he's saying anything that's provocative to the point of being counterfactual, he'd be called out on it, and it would it would be a poor rhetorical move. So the fact that Jesus in his story simply speaks of the poor man dying and being carried by the angels, we can have a pretty safe assumption that this is the standard view of what happens when you die. So, you know, immediately upon death, the first thing you, you will likely to see, at least I'm kind of expecting this, might not be the face of Jesus himself. It, it may be too. I mean, I'm not going to ruin anything for you. But according to a verse like this, it might well be the faces of holy angels who are going to bear you up, as it says here, the angels, um, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, who are going to bear you up and carry you home to our Lord Jesus and to Abraham's side. The, the, um, the church fathers over the centuries gathered together all the different kind of euphemisms for Christian death in the scriptures. And um, these are the the blessed names of death. And this is one of those blessed names um, to be taken to Abraham's bosom. Um, and so we can see, you know, as soon as you die here, according to, according to this sermon of Jesus, you would be expecting the angels to come and carry you into the fellowship of God's kingdom. All right.
that's what happens when the poor man dies. Now, what about the rich man? The rich man also died, interesting, and was buried. Now, does it mean that the poor man died and wasn't buried? But look at the artistry of what Jesus is doing. What's the movement of the man, the rich man who dies? Down into the earth, buried. Kind of, again, that picture that uh, Steve was mentioning of corruption. So you can see the contrast, being carried by the angels versus being buried. Okay, and in Hades. Now, here's a parallel phrase for what we, a parallel biblical word for what we often speak of as hell. Um, in Peter, prison, here, Hades. And this is the place where those who die without being reconciled to God go. So, being in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. Again, you can see where it's he's in a position of being low, to where he lifts up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, again, at his bosom. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now again, you could see how it would make sense for the imagery to be a feast that he's at with Abraham and the water's right there. And hey, send him to bring me some of that water, even just a little bit. Now, commentators often point out that what seems to have changed about the heart and attitude of this rich man? Nothing. <laughs> Even in hell, he thinks he's the boss of Lazarus. <laughs> and he sees Lazarus as an end to a means. And he sees himself as rich and important and Lazarus as worthless and menial. So, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus to play waiter for me and to bring me a, a tip of water, a, or a drop of water on the tip of his finger, um, to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. All right, so what do we gain from this? The intermediate state known as Hades, prison, hell. Is this a place you want to go? No, not at all. In fact, in all the scriptures, who speaks most about hell? Jesus. And he does so in the most extreme terms. Now, hyperbole to be sure, but it would be better for you to cut off your limbs. It would be better for you to saw off your tongue. It would be better for you to rip out your eyeballs than go into this place. Um, and he talks about it as a place of extreme darkness, extreme fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, relentless kind of torment. And, you know, we can infer from this imagery that at the heart of this is a kind of spiritual torment more than anything else, even more than the physical aspects. Okay, so if our Lord Jesus himself speaks about hell and does so in such a way as to, well, scare the hell out of us, um, then I think we as a church could do the same. And we can do so without fear, without shame, without 
you know, being fear of being labeled as, oh, that's just fire and brimstone kind of stuff. Well, and I, I mean, if the shoe fits Jesus, then I'm willing to try it on myself. So um, what is his intent and purpose of, of not shying away from speaking of the horrors of hell and of, the, of this being a place you don't want to go to? Well, his whole point is don't go there. His whole point is, I am salvation. Here is your free invitation to escape all of this. I have come precisely so that you wouldn't go to this place. I am the reconciliation with God embodied. Okay, so we can see that this it would be what we Lutherans would call a preaching of law and gospel. Preaching hell as it is, is preaching law. It's preaching repentance that one might come to their senses before it's too late and receive the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus and be brought to everlasting life. Like that's the whole point. These two things cohere. All right. What does Abraham say to this request? Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. What's Abraham's answer? A reversal has taken place. You who are rich and famous are unknown. The one who is unknown is now well known. You who were clothed and feasted sumptuously, had all the good things you could imagine, now you've been stripped, and he who had nothing has been given everything. Now this great reversal theology, this shifting of everything, is at the essence of the understanding of the gospel in the Old and New Testament scriptures. Where would you see this maybe in its most crystalline form? Okay, The Magnificat. Remember Mary's song? How she sings about the proud and mighty being cast down and God being the one who lifts up the lowly. The hungry being fed good things. The rich being sent empty away. All right, so what then do we have from this? Oh, what would be the other crystalline place? And if you were to go like, okay, Jesus, where do I learn this from you? Well, it frequently shows up in his parables and sermons, but maybe most familiar to you would be the opening salvo of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the rich and successful, because obviously they've done everything right and God's blessed them with temporal blessings, and as it goes on earth, it's just a precursor for how it's going to go in heaven. No! I mean, Jesus so revolutionary with his preaching, blessed are the poor in spirit. There was not a single ear on that mount that day who was waiting for those words to come out of Jesus' lips. And when they did, how astonishing, how wonderful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. And so on. So he blesses those who the world would call cursed. And in many places, as well as later on in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe even more explicitly in the Sermon on, on the Plain, he curses those who count themselves blessed. No. I think we can see this in the decadence of our culture, sometimes on social media. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> I'm living the good life. How about you? You know, God has blessed me richly. How about you? You know, this kind of, this kind of thing. And you can, you can see the, the arrogance, the boastfulness, the pride 
in in this. And and so what we see, what we see in this reversal is tying in to some very rich, deep theological traditions of the Old Testament. They especially, I think, assert themselves in, in the Psalms. You can even think of like Naboth's vineyard, the poor man who owned a vineyard, and that being taken away so that it could be added to the fat cat. You can even think of David's sin and how the prophet confronts him. Hey, you had all the flocks, but this one little man had the one little sheep that was as a daughter to him, and you came and slaughtered it. So, in other words, what you get through the scriptures is this, this kind of iconization, this caricature or stereotype that's very helpful, that, the, that being rich is synonymous with being full, needing nothing from God, being independent and proud and arrogant, while as being poor is being in a state of crying out for God's help and mercy and needing to be filled and fulfilled by Him. You see, so poor and rich take on this iconic kind of um, or caricaturization in biblical theology. All right, so we've got then a classic example of this. And that way, what we see here is in Abraham's words, we can see that, you know, Abraham's words given to us by Jesus, we can see this reversal theme. Now, if, um, if the rich man were a Christian, and every time he went in or out of his gate, he saw Lazarus there, what would he do? Show mercy. He didn't. He's not. That's how we know that this man is not a Christian and doesn't desire the mercy of God. Very similar to a pastoral circumstance that James found himself in, the author of the book, where he was dealing with this real-life instance in his congregation that some of the brothers and sisters in the congregation had, had been so destitute that they weren't properly clothed and they couldn't eat. And when he made his pastoral appeal to other members, wealthy members of the congregation, could you please help care for these? Could you please clothe them? Could you please feed them? Guess what, react, guess what response he got? We don't have to do good works because we're justified by faith. Now you can understand James' rhetoric. You call that faith? That's the faith of demons. If you have that faith, but can't even show this bare modicum of love and mercy that God has so abundantly shown to you, you're not even a Christian. Faith, such faith, apart from works, apart from these works, is dead. Now you can see why it's kind of a, I think, a little bit of a fool's errand to run off and try to justify this with St. Paul as if these are all like dogmatic books that fell from heaven and we've got to get our system all tightened out. This is a real-life pastoral circumstance where people are saying, I, I'm going to act like the rich man. Why are you going to act like the rich man? Because I'm a Christian. Me thinks you've misunderstood Christianity. Me thinks you've misunderstood justification by grace through faith. Okay, so now we understand where James is coming from. And we can see here too, in no uncertain terms, that this man has not received God's mercy and thus shows no mercy. All right, let's pick back up with what uh, Abraham says here. 
So he is being comforted and you are in anguish, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross they, um, from there to us. All right, then the rich man says, then I beg you, Father, again speaking to Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's the irony of this? So we did rise from the dead. In fact, there's kind of a double irony here. Someone did rise from the dead before Jesus. And what was his name? Lazarus! <laughs> so Lazarus actually rises from the dead. In John's Gospel, we learn that they wanted to kill Lazarus as much as they wanted to kill Jesus in those final days. Why? Because he was the definitive proof. He was literally what Jesus was, in a sense, prophesying in this sermon. So fine, you will get Lazarus back from the dead, and he will preach these things to you, and what is your, what's going to be your response? You're going to want to kill him. You're going to listen to him. So you can see how this works. And then, of course, deepest of all ironies, Christ himself is crucified, is raised from the dead, and preaches and speaks. And do they believe on that account? No. So if you won't believe the word of God, neither will you believe one who is risen from the dead. Okay, so that's the answer we get. And Jesus kind of tra is trailing off into a couple of different teachings there, a couple of different things that he's purposing there. So back, back then to look at this text and just extract from it the data for our project, which is looking at the intermediate state. We spent a great deal with our Lord Jesus kind of causing us to meditate on that place you don't want to go when you die. But we also grasp from him some of the essential characteristics of that place where we do want to go when we die. Namely, that upon death, God sends his angels. They keep us safe and they guide us home. The place where we're going, we can be assured of as home. Such a beautiful, such, and, and you know, one of the transitions we have as adults is home changes shape over the years, doesn't it? First, first home kind of means a house and an environment. And maybe if you move with your family, you realize, well, home is kind of my parents and my siblings. And then you leave home and you go off to school or you get married and home starts to take a different shape, doesn't it? And then you start to maybe associate home with your spouse and with your children. But then your children leave home and you've got to kind of redefine home again, and maybe you've moved at various points in time, and, and then things become uncertain, and maybe you can't keep up what has been your home, and so you've got to go to independent living, and that changes the shape of home. And what this does for us, catechetically, throughout our lives, God has arranged it as such, that we realize at one point or another, in an ever-deepening way, that this earth is not our home. And even our relationship with people, as, as much as that might feel like home, that's not really home either. 
And so part of our great yearning and desire for eternal life is to finally be home in the profoundest sense, in the sense that I can be who I am and be loved and accepted, in the place that I can be somewhere that's permanent and not going to be taken away from me. I can be secure and I can be around people who love me and I love them. Home in all the deepest sense. That's what we receive when we go to Abraham's bosom because that's the picture. This is home. This is the dining room table. This is the barbecue, the party, the feast. And this is what heaven is like according to Jesus. So with great desire, we can long to be there. We see what kind of people who are going to be there. Salt of the earth people whom this world trampled. The Lazaruses of the world are going to be there. People of sorrow well acquainted with tears. People experiencing the great joy and abundance of God. Salt of the earth people um, with whom we can be immediately at home. I don't know what else to draw out here. Certainly other things could be drawn out, but maybe that's sufficient. If you see anything that you would uh, want to speak to, um, I'm all ears. We can give you opportunity. Otherwise, that's really what I wanted to get out or extract for the purposes of our study from this sermon of Jesus. There's a, there's a couple hands back here. Uh, two things. Uh, first, could you talk a little bit about the, you know, I, I, I was struck by that, that Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate and then he was carried to Abraham's bosom. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. That like, it's like he, here was one custodian over him was the rich man. Yeah. And there's a contrast between his heavenly custodian, which is Abraham. Fantastic point. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's a, a an okay parallel to make? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I do. Then, I do. Now it's now it definitely tilts on the more what I'm going to say next tilts on the more creative or homiletical side as opposed to pure exegesis, right? Um, but I think you can even if you kind of follow that along, you can even see in the rich man a kind of picture and image of Satan himself and the way that he rules, um, as opposed to. Abraham or Christ or God and, and the way he rules. And so it would dovetail very nicely with that idea of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. Del as Lazarus, deliver me from this rich man who cares nothing for me and deliver me by taking me to the heavenly abode, to the heavenly home. So I think there's a lot you could do with that contrast. I really appreciate it. There was one other thing, uh, and that is this... Um, Abraham gives two reasons why Lazarus, why Lazarus can't bring water to the rich man. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is the whole business about the gulf. Mm -hmm. But the first reason he gives is that somehow it wouldn't be fitting or proper because he said, you received your good things mm -hmm. in life and now, and Lazarus got bad things. And now it's like Lazarus is getting maybe the things that really are good. I think it's interesting that you received your good things mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. There's a little caveat there, isn't there? Right, right. Uh, that as if, you know, okay, you that's what you wanted. Right. And now you're getting it. Now you're getting the end of it. Right. That fits perfectly with our Lord's teaching about the so-called treasures of this earth and how can they be all that valuable if thieves can steal, if moths can destroy, if rust can ruin. 
and that our true treasures are those heavenly treasures. So I think that's yet another great point that you've brought out. Just fantastic. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting too, because I think you can surmise, you know, in the, in the one hand, hey, this would, this would not be fitting. This would not be fitting. That's the first argument. And the second argument is, is almost, I think, one of grace. And, and even if we did sort of want to follow the logic of God's grace and do this for you, we couldn't. There's a chasm in the way, you know? It's like, it's like, I, to me, there's almost even a sense in which God's grace and the heavenly grace is so super abundant. It kind of would bubble over and roll down, if not for the chasm of God's justice and what he sees as fitting. Yeah. All right. I saw, thank you so much for those comments. I saw another hand from. As I age, the idea of longevity is um, uh, something I focus on more. Think of uh, the, the youth that wants something right now, and it is going to satisfy right now. But what's brought to mind in this lesson is how uh, the, 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 mature, the mature decision is to go for longevity. What is going to be of, of, of uh, tenderness towards God between me, a human, and, and, and him? Uh, and I don't know, it, it's growing in me that I have a, a choice of something simple like the dessert at the end of the table first and forgo, forgo everything else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, I think you get the drift of what Yeah, I'm God's saying. got us on a delayed gratification plan here, doesn't he? Yeah. And part of that is realizing that the things that we want, that once gratified us and that we once sought, I think this is one of the blessings of aging, is you start to see that they're not all they were cracked up to be. And at best, they're sort of foretastes of what the real thing should be, you know. And, and again, like Ecclesiastes in the book of Ecclesiastes kind of acutely attacks, hey, these, even if it was the perfect earthly blessing, it's temporary, isn't it? And so just by that fact alone, it makes us long for that which is eternal. I kind of love that part of uh, Vicar's sermon this morning where he talked about, you know, when you're, um, when you're at a party and you're having a good time, and it's like, it's like you just, you, you've lost track of trouble, you've lost track of other time, you're just there and enjoying, and there's almost kind of this endless quality to it. And, you know, it's a foretaste of, of that heavenly bliss. I thought that was a really lovely point. Um, because that heavenly bliss is, hey, we got nowhere to go. We got no end to this. We're going to rejoice and have fun, and that'll move and shift and take different forms. But it's not as if the party ends, you know. Maybe I should put it this way. There are no hangovers in heaven. <laughs> okay, please. Yeah, it's interesting that not even Abraham knows this rich man's name. But at the same time, it's disturbing that he calls him child, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, he, here this guy's in hell, but he still calls him child. That's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's troubling. Just like the couple chapters before, the father calls both of his sons, my son, mm. right? Mm. The angry one and the prodigal one. He still has this love for them. But I mean, how do you explain that with him still being child, even though he's in this torment and anguish. Yeah, it is interesting. And Abraham, the play, the, like the essential meaning there being father, and of course the rich man calls him father, and then he refers to him yet as child. Uh, Abraham uh, likely really is kind of the embodiment of God, the father, in this. So yeah, a really interesting point there too. I hadn't considered that. 
you you start to have that the prodigal son versus the uh, the, the self righteous son. Um, maybe some of those dynamics um, here as well. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Very good. Very good. Yes, please. So you saying that immediately the verse when Jesus on Judgment Day and He says, "Depart from me, mm-hmm. you wicked." person i never knew you mm-hmm. maybe that's why the name's excluded and we never hear the name because jesus says that yeah. come judgment day maybe yeah yeah there's a big thing about remembering and forgetting and knowing and not knowing along with that yeah that's a huge motif remember the thief on the cross what he says remember me we want god to forget our sins and remember us and what um and, and he does. That's exactly what he gives us in Christ. He forgets our sins. He remembers them no more. But he does remember us. Now, when you reject Christ, the exact opposite happens, doesn't it? Yeah. He, uh, he remembers your sins and then forgets you. <laughs> yeah. So we don't want that. We don't want that. Lord, forget my sins and remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, one more question. This, this, okay, maybe I shouldn't even ask this question because it, I could be labeled as a hater or something. But could this be a foreshadowing of Jesus sending the gospel to the Gentiles? The rich man being someone who has Moses and the prophets along with all his brothers, mm-hmm. and he has all these things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But, and Lazarus being like, the poor Gentile who has none of those things mm. that Jesus was sent to, to save. I don't know if, if that's too out there or not, but, but, um, I mean, for, yeah, the I fact mean, that you know, Abraham calls him my child, that's, that's Steve's comment sort of made mm-hmm. me think, okay, so this is a child of Abraham who has brothers, who knows Moses and the prophets. None of that applies to Lazarus. Lazarus is just saved. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. I'd have to think more about it. I mean, I, the only thing that kind of pops up in my mind is maybe mitigating is that Lazarus is a pretty Jewish name. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but but would I say that there's some kind of poetic homiletical value to it, you know, uh, to think and meditate on it? Sure, that might that might not be pure exegesis, but nonetheless godly meditation and, and um, thought-provoking ways of looking at it. Sure. I don't know. I'll have to think more about that point in specific. When I heard that part of uh, the story, well, they have Moses and the prophets, and you know they won't believe if even if somebody ri- rises from the dead. Yeah. Well, somebody rose from the dead, mm-hmm. and then on the road to Emmaus was talking to them about how Moses and the prophets talked about him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was kind of a fun connection to think about. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great connection, a fantastic connection, and it's and yeah, and it does us well to just remember that. That, you know, when Abraham via Jesus says they have Moses and the prophets, you know, hey, send this guy from the dead to go talk to them. Jesus slash Abraham's response is they have the Bible. You know, so I think that we can take great stock in that, that the, that the Bible's enough. The Bible's sufficient. The words of Scripture, the proclamation of those words are sufficient. Yeah. And thankfully, we have the revelation of God in Christ who then points us to himself as the one uh, whose scripture points to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All those layers upon layers. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you see that here in this text where you've got Jesus and Abraham and the scriptures, all of the above. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for those thoughts and meditations. Anybody else have a point they'd like to make in regard to this, this text? All right. So let's, let's do some really light work then. And let's just jump to two places really quick just to learn some more about this intermediate state. Now, one of these places, Revelation 6, let's go there. And the point we're going to extract is very minor. Now, next week, we're going to be jumping into Revelation 21 and 22. That's kind of going to be the, the climax and crescendo of our study here and why, where we're cheating a little bit because those verses have more, those chapters have more to do with the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth, where we're ultimately going, okay? Um, but here in Revelation 6, we do want to note um, one important fact that kind of just, we might, we might run over it if we're not aware. And I want you to see just that this comes from the scriptures. So Revelation 6, all right, we're in the midst of the seven seals. And we want the section on the martyrs. Where are those folks? Yes, probably around verse 9. All right. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. All right, so John is in heaven. He's seeing the altar of God. Remember the altar of the tabernacle and temple? These things are earthly representations of what is there actually in heaven, really and truly in heaven. And so he's seeing this altar of God in heaven, and he's seeing under the altar. Now, it, we don't have to read that super literalistically. You can think of the altar as having a rim, and a, if you like, and them just being right next to it, but under it. I mean, nonetheless, the picture of the altar is very large. Okay, but you don't have to take this so literalistically that somehow they're like hiding under the altar. Okay, um, but they are, they are then... Um, under the altar, all right? And it's the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. So martyrs here, witnesses here in the more narrow or technical sense of the word. And he's seeing their souls. What does a soul look like? According to the rest of Revelation, your soul looks like your body. It's just not your body. Your soul looks like you, Okay. So he's seeing their souls, and now they cry out in verse 10 with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each chastised for being naughty and not forgiving enough. No, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The fullness of the martyrs. All right, what then do we grasp from this? Actually, many remarkable things, um, or several. In what they say, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Immediately we recognize that in heaven there's a passage of time. And that passage of time is connected with the passage of time here. So it's wrong for us to think of going to heaven and just blasting off into eternity. True eternity is stasis. This is why Luther will say that God in his eternal being, to him, everything's present. It's the only way it can be. Um, it's stasis. If you define time, you're really defining change or a succession of events, one thing demarking another thing, and you've created time, okay? 
um, not to get too headsy there. The point simply being, from the words of Scripture themselves, how long the saints in heaven are aware of time, their time is connected with our time, and these two timelines are progressing toward an end. Now, in their lament, how long, I think we have another thing that we can be disillusioned of, and that's that as soon as you die and the angels come and gather you and draw you up into heaven, it's not like you suddenly get a lobotomy and you forget all the pains and sorrows you've been through and all the pains and the sorrows that are ongoing upon the earth. What rather you receive is healing. You have not no tears in heaven, but rather the shepherd who wipes away every tear from their eyes. You have the martyrs here lamenting how long, not only for us, but for our brothers below. So you have this sense of God ministering to them, not just lobotomizing or removing all pain, like, oh gosh, that, you know, like you just freshly come out into heaven from out of earth, and you're like, wow, that place really sucks. You know, well, what place? I don't remember any place. Where am I? Who am I? You know, this is all nonsense. This isn't the biblical picture of heaven whatsoever. There's great continuity. When you're in heaven, you're going to realize that we're all part of this great big timeline, and we're with Jesus, and he's comforting us, and it's paradise, and it's blessed. And yet there's a sense of fulfillment still to come. So we can gather all of this time in heaven, the longing for the fulfillment of all things, and we can also see here, too, that there is a longing amongst the saints. Ooh, this is going to have to be my last point, probably. There's a longing amongst the saints, not only for their own personal forgiveness, which by this time they've received. And there's a longing in us not only for our forgiveness, but secondarily for vindication. And what we see in a verse like this is that that's not an unholy desire. Okay? There's a desire not only to be forgiven, God forgiving us, but to be vindicated. Okay? Such that what I bore witness to is true. And when they murdered me for bearing witness to that, they were wrong. Okay? So this desire for vindication, um, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Vengeance isn't wrong. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. So vengeance isn't ours to take, but we can't mistake that then for vengeance is wrong. Otherwise, they'd be chastised. How dare you say that? Um, they're not. They're commended. They're given white robes and, and palm branches. So what, what else can we gain from this? That the desire for eternal life is that the scales are finally balanced. Who was lying and who was telling the truth is shown. Who was wicked, pretending to be good, and who was truly good is revealed. And this is one of the most important things that we can remember so that we don't get frustrated. You know, because you get so profoundly frustrated that it might even embitter your heart. It might even take away um, the joy and warmth of love within you. If you look at all in the media, you look at all the wicked people getting away with it. And you see all their lies. And you see them getting away with it. And you see all the evil. And you see them being worshipped as if they were good. 
an essential part of our healing is that we confess our evil and be forgiven, and then that we be vindicated and we see justice done. This is going to be a profoundly healing thing. And this is why, this is yet one more of our most profound and fundamental desires for eternal life. And how from a scripture like this, we can see that God says, hey, he, does, he doesn't say, hey, that's never going to happen. He says, not yet. Not yet. Wait and trust. It will come. And by the way, the reason why you need to wait and trust is precisely because I'm drawing in even more of your brothers. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, even more Christians. Here in Scripture, even more martyrs. So we see that the only reason for God's delay is his grace and mercy toward his people and his desire to have an even more rich, abundant, and expansive kingdom. But don't mistake that for laziness or complacency or God's not caring. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's going to set it right. You will be vindicated. Be patient. Yeah. That's a great place to stop. The Lord be with you.